Please turn with you now to our sermon text in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, beginning with verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with him came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with him who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they walked together, They talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, truly, Lord, you speak truth to us. You are God of light and truth. Lord, we are people of darkness. We see that even your disciples did not receive these things. And we ourselves, apart from you doing a great work, a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, our eyes will likewise be restrained. Our hearts will likewise be unbelieving. And at most we will marvel rather than believe. Lord, we pray that you would do this great work and enable us to receive these things with joy and to believe them truly to our salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we move from the marvelous news that Jesus Christ is risen, that which we last considered in this final chapter of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, now to the reception of this news among those who receive it. And we sort of, in this word, straddling um, a couple of different sections of it. Yes, also the first section and then this middle section between verses 8 and 13, but we also actually touch into the section dealing with the Emmaus Road, at least to the initial reception of the news that reached them, or rather to the man who walked with him. So we consider the, the way that the ten disciples received it, the way Peter received it, and the way these two followers on their way to Emmaus received it. And friends, strangely, and I, I have to say strangely, strangely, they do not all immediately receive the news of the resurrection with joy and with faith. In fact, among none of them, none of them, not a single one of them actually do so. 
but it's met with various degrees of unbelief. Now, they say, you know, that there are kind of spurious experiences which have no, you, you can't draw any larger conclusion from. You know, you might accidentally come to one little thing or accidentally come to another. But after a while, you begin to see a trend. And after a while, that trend actually means something. After a while, there's meaning behind it that we need to, there needs to be an explanation for why it is. If it were one of those ten disciples who happened to unbelieve, then, then that's, you know, maybe not all that significant. None of them did. And what we see here makes a larger point. That men are naturally blind when it comes to spiritual things. Men are naturally blind. Some of you probably know that Jonathan Edwards preached a famous three-sermon series on the topic, published under the name, Man's Natural Blindness in Things of Religion. And his subject was this. I'll read it to you. There is an extreme and brutish blindness in things of religion that naturally possesses the hearts of mankind. And friends, truer words were never spoken than these. An extreme and brutish blindness in things of religion that naturally possess the hearts of mankind. Now, is this useful information for us? It doesn't seem quite as joyful and, and wonderful of the initial news of the resurrection that we considered last time. But is this useful information for us? Absolutely it is. Because a correct diagnosis of the human condition keeps us away from all that is superficial, all superficial and false cures. And we know that the world is full of these things. And it focuses our efforts on the one thing that does work. And that's why we want to think about these things. We want to t- look at it square in the face, the reality of man's natural blindness. Well, that's our title this morning, Man's Natural Blindness. And the three points just have to do with the three groups of people. One, the disciples disbelieve. Two, Peter marvels. And three, the Emmaus men are blinded. Let's begin with the disciples and their disbelief. In verse 9 it says, They returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So the women, they're convinced, and not, not at first when they come to the empty tomb, not expecting, not receiving, having already received the words of the Savior as he prophesied, as he said, I am going to be raised from the dead on the third day, not once, not twice, three or more times in the Gospels. But at least at long last, as the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and they believed the testimony, were convinced by the, the angels at long last, well, thankfully, they are obedient to what they were told to do. And they were told in Mark sixteen seven, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they do so. And we give thanks to God that so they did. And then the women are named here in verse 10. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women with him who told these things to the apostles. Now, it doesn't say random, strange people that had never seen the disciples before in their lives. Rather, intimate, close, long-term associates, the inner circle. One of them, among other things, a mother of one of the very chief uh, apostles of James and of John. 
and yet somehow they don't believe them. In fact, in verse 11, their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Friends, again, these disciples, these ten, had already heard more than once from the lips of Jesus, I will be, I will be handed over to wicked men. I will be, uh, you know, I will be uh, tried and, and found guilty, and I will be crucified, dead and buried, and the third day I will Raise again, and you, we, again, we said as last time, they should have gone through the checklist. Okay, right, he's been handed over. All right, he's been crucified. Looks like he's dead. Okay, we're waiting. The next thing on the third day, we know the last thing that he said is going to happen. And they didn't. And even when the testimony reaches them among their own people, relaying to them the testimony of holy angels, it seems to them like idle tales. Friends, should we be so surprised when the gospel is preached, when we declare the gospel to our friends and neighbors and loved ones and they don't believe it? One lexicon defines that word where it says in verse 11, their words seem to them like idle tales. Defines it this way, speech which is complete and utter nonsense. Right? It's not just Richard Dawkins who says that the word of God is complete and utter nonsense, you have to understand that ten out of the twelve disciples also thought that the word of God was complete and utter nonsense. The most important and wonderful news, the absolute core of the gospel, we're not talking about some extraneous little detail, the absolute core of the gospel, which is the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Complete and utter nonsense. How do we account for this? How? Man is naturally blind. We live in an illusion. We live in a a make-believe sort of world where we imagine that uh, by nature we are are, are seeing and wonderfully believing and we have good, our reason is unimpaired and all the rest of it. But friends, it's just not true. That's our pride. That's how we flatter ourselves. And we look back and we say, how could we not believe? How could anyone not believe what we believe? That's not reality. The reality is God did a supernatural and amazing work to work against our invincible ignorance and darkness, our hatred of the word of God, hatred of God himself, by the way, don't forget about that, and our natural tendency to disbelieve every single word that God speaks. Right? The disciples disbelieve. Well, what about Peter? Peter seems a little bit better. This is our second point. Peter marvels. Verse 12, But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now that seems a little bit better. And let me say, I think there's a reason for it. Because our darkness, our ignorance, closely related to our human pride. You see, sin... Pride, ignorance, those things all go together. And this was precisely the, the problem, that what, what leads to our darkness is our pride. We're not like a little child who when the, the child's father speaks, the, the child believes. Right? That's the way we should be to God, like little children receiving whatever our Heavenly Father tells us. But we're not like that because in our pride, we, we think we're self-sufficient and we, we, we don't have that natural tendency 
But Peter, of course, had been dealt with. He's in a slightly different situation than the other disciples because he had just been broken. And his pride had been exposed and dashed when before he had, he had raised his fists and saying, I will never deny you. I will die with you if need be. These others may fly, fly away. These others may, in their fear, dismiss you and disown you. But not me. I'm going to stand. But we know what happened to him. We know how the Lord really lovingly actually dealt with him. And telling him that he was going to deny him three times. And so he did. We know that Peter wept bitterly. Do you remember that? He wept bitterly. When's the last time you wept about your conduct to the Lord Jesus Christ? When is the last time that your pride has been humbled? And frankly, I could, you could chart. You could take every one of us and say, when is the last time our pride has been humbled along those lines? And you could chart our response to the word of God. Because those for whom it's been really recent and fresh, you're, sucking, you're, you're taking in the word of God. And it, and it means something to you. And you're gladly receiving it. But for those whose pride hasn't been dealt with recently, these words are like idle tales. Well, at least Peter then, therefore, is prompted to investigate. We know from John 20 that John uh, goes with him. Uh, it's not mentioned here. And we know that John testifies concerning himself that he at least believed. And this is John chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. But there's no mention of John in Luke. It's interesting. Not because Luke is out to conceal anything. Of course, uh, they, Luke, Luke knew of, of there being other Gospels. God had different plans for each one of the four Gospels. That's why we have four of them. But because John, the beloved disciple who has granted so many wonderful privileges, is the exception here. right? He's not the trend. He's not the rule. John was granted amazing, exceptional situations. So much so the disciples say, this guy is actually never going to die. I mean, he's admitted to so many amazing privileges. He is just different. And that's true. And then, therefore, he's not included in this group of people in the way that they respond to the news that Christ is risen, because he is different. He's not part of that trend. And Luke is pointing us rather to the prevailing rule of the varying degrees of unbelief. Now, um, as I, now, John in his gospel does not say that Peter believed. He says he believed. He does not say that Peter did. And what does our text say concerning Peter? Not that he believed, but that he marveled. Marveled. Somewhat ambiguous, but let's look at the way that's previously been used in the Gospel of Luke back in chapter 8, verse 24 and 25. They came to him, this is, you know, in the storm. They came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. The boat was about to be swamped in this terrible storm. And he arose and rebuked the wind and raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. What is being conveyed there? What is the state of mind? What is the state of heart of those disciples at the moment? Is it true faith? No. Obviously not, because Jesus says, Where is it? Where is your faith? It's not there. It's non-existent. 
What's being conveyed when, it, when the word of God says that they marveled is that they are being confronted with irrefutable evidence that they are struggling to come to terms with rather than believing. Right? It's not the absence of evidence like the unbelievers want to say, the atheists want to say, show me evidence, I believe. Please. It is in the face of utterly irrefutable evidence that Peter in his darkness is still struggling to make sense of rather than believe what is obviously true. Just like those disciples back in Luke chapter 8. Rather than believe what is utterly and obviously true. And that's where Peter is at this point. His physical eyes are telling him that Christ is risen. The grave is empty. His ears had already told him the testimony was conveyed to him, the word of God. That's the way all of you, all of us are conveyed the word of God by some messenger. And the angels told it to the women. The women told it to, to Peter and the rest of the disciples. His eyes and his ears, the evidence is there. It's irrefutable. But his mind... It's telling him it's impossible, right? People don't, who are dead, and he saw that Jesus was dead, do not rise from the dead. And that's, you see, the darkness of the human mind. That we listen to our own false ideas of what is reasonable rather than to the inerrant, perfect word of God that he speaks to us. And Peter does not yet really believe. John, by the way, gives this explanation in John 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Do you understand the nature of what's being said there? The explanation of their unbelief is that they haven't really received the word of God. It's not yet. He could have said, uh, and Peter still didn't believe, for as yet they had not seen the evidence. For as yet they had not really heard a convincing argument. That's not it. They had seen the evidence. They had heard the argument. The issue is they had not received the word of God. And friends, that is always, always, always the issue. And do not ever get sidetracked with that. There is a place for apologetics. We teach it at our little seminary. But let us not ever imagine that the really crucial central issue has anything to do with evidence or uh, or argumentation or anything along those lines. That's not the issue. The issue is the wicked human heart that takes every bit of information that is poured into it and responds with wicked unbelief. And that invincible ignorance and disregard of what is true is what only the Holy Spirit can fix in the work of supernatural regeneration. We must not forget that. Well, we see the disciples, and in some sense, Peter's better response, at least he goes and investigates, that's good, but in some sense it's even worse. Because in the face of all that, he now is dealing with much more information than they. And yet he has not yet come to real faith Thirdly, we come to the Emmaus men, and they're blind. It says in verse 13, now behold, two of them, meaning two of that larger group, because as you remember, it was not just 
the ten disciples and Peter, it was the other followers of Jesus. We know there are different circles, the inner circle of the three, and the larger group of the twelve, now down to eleven after Judas, and then beyond that, the seventy, you know. And, and so there are different circles, and they're a part of that larger circle of believers and followers who were there hearing these things from the women as well. And two of them had left from there and were traveling uh, that same day to a village called Emmaus. But they were there, and as we learn later, had heard this message, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they walked, uh, sorry, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so there they are. Uh, they'd heard this report, and they're discussing it among themselves. And verse 15, so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with him. Now, beloved, up until this point, none of the characters that we've been discussing had actually seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking to yourselves, well, this will surely do it. Right? So the first group, they only had the report of the women, and they didn't believe it. And then Peter has a report of the women and the empty tomb, and he didn't believe it. And now this third group, they have the testimony. And they actually see the risen Lord Jesus. Surely, surely they will believe. But of course, they don't. They don't. They're actually having a conversation with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And they don't believe. In fact, it says in verse 16, But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Now, in what sense are their eyes restrained? Does it mean that they are naturally seeing and that God, being mean, decides to restrain their eyes? No. No, no, no. We're reminded from Romans 11, verse 25, the reality of the blindness. For instance, he speaks of, of the blindness of Israel. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This blindness that is spoken of in Second Peter, which I'll mention again in the application, the blindness that is seen, it's not something that God adds to man. It's a blindness that is naturally there. An original sin. Because we're born dead in our sins and trespasses. We are born blind to the things of God because of the effects of sin in our hearts and souls. Well, these are the people, the disciples, Peter, these two men going to Emmaus, they're all blind. And the application of these things is to say this. Or to declare to you really the bad news. This is part of the gospel of bad news. It's not merely, it's not just that we are sinners in need of salvation. It's that we're utterly blind and deaf to the, even the gospel itself. Right? The word of God tells us about original sin. Tells us we're born dead in sins and trespasses. It's, it's not that we are born good and we eventually go astray. We are born bad. And God in his goodness brings some of us out of that terrible condition. And we see these things, by the way, at work in the world around us. Edwards does, by the way, a wonderful job in that. And I'd very much recommend that sermon by Edwards. 
He does a wonderful job at pointing to us what the world looks like. For instance, in idolatry. What do the best efforts of pagan antiquity look like after they, they grope around and grasp for a true religion? Grotesque projections of the very worst of men and of beasts, ugly in appearance and even uglier in behavior. Whether the grotesque monsters of ancient Egypt or the grotesque monsters of the ancient Near East or the monstrous behavior of the ancient gods of Greece and Rome, this is what they come up with. Idolatry. Or the debased morality of antiquity, or even of today, in which the very worst vices are lauded as virtue. Friends, you have to understand just how debased and how blind man is. Not just that that wickedness is tolerated, but it is actually lauded as being a good thing. And friends, as this nation continues to walk away from the living God and his word, we see these things come to pass in living color. Rank unbelief. Now, that's, by the way, been the focus here. Rank unbelief. And I want to remind you, we're not talking about the world as a whole. We understand that they don't believe. They ought to. There's testimony in the world around them. There's testimony in their own hearts of the reality of God, and they refuse to listen. And they push it under, and they twist it into something else. But friends, I want you again to remember that the, the blindness and the darkness and the unbelief that we have just been considering happens among professed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. All, among all, the whole world, you would not have found a group of people more likely to believe if they could have. Those who were already his disciples and followers. And they did not receive the news that was given to them of Christ's resurrection. How much worse the world at large. Heresy. It's not just the, the, the idolatry and the debased morality and the rank unbelief, but it's the heresy even among God's people. How long does it take men to twist the word of God? Once they've received the gospel, the truth, the true theology, how long does it take them to twist it into something false and heretical? Half a generation maybe? There is not a single orthodox doctrine that has proved impossible or even difficult for man in his blindness to distort and twist into something false. And they do. So, beloved, please, don't think to yourself, heresy is something rare that happens to a few unfavored ones. It is the inevitable, natural outcome of the human heart at work naturally and apart from God's goodness, apart from his sovereign keeping Every last one of us will soon fall into it. Just, as, just like every last one of us will soon fall into sin. You don't need to be amazed to find out. Do you mean that there are those who profess to be Christians who actually are teaching something different than the word of God? Of course they are. Of course they are. Because the default setting, the default tendency of the human heart is to unbelief. And to twist the things that are true, the things that are more amenable with the human heart. Every lasting look, every last aspect, every crucial element of, of orthodoxy is at a 180 degree odds against our pride. And you can imagine that given half a chance, we will fiddle with it 
And we will make it a little bit more amenable. Even the thing I've just talked about. I've been talking about original sin. How popular is original sin today? I say to you that we're born dead. Half a generation. Some of you will be saying we're we're sick. We're not dead. God wouldn't make us. Wouldn't allow us to be born dead in our sins and trespasses. Completely blind and deaf. We just we have a cold, we have a flu, and God can and, and He'll assist us with His grace, because we're basically kind of sort of good under under it all. It's a lie. It's a lie. I can't tell you how many professed Christians believe that lie, and many others like it. Now we have to conclude something about all this. People are not naturally believers who need something to pull them away. From being believers, they are natural unbelievers who need something supernatural and and omnipotent to make some fundamental change in them that will bring them to faith. Okay, that's our situation. Ephesians two one and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That was our condition: dead in trespasses and sins. Or Ephesians four seventeen. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. That's the rude explanation of all this unbelief is the blindness of their heart. Or 2 Corinthians 3.13. Or 14, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, as the veil is taken away in Christ. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies in their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is turned away. When the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Reminder of this veil, this inherent unbelief, this inherent darkness. But yet there is a spirit of the Lord who is able to take these things away. And that's the good news. Right? The bad news is this is your condition, naturally. The good news is you have a, there is a God in heaven who is able to do this incredibly difficult thing. To take away this darkness. To give you eyes to see. To give you ears to hear. And a heart to believe the truth of the gospel. That's the wonderful good news. Edwards, by the way, in one of his applications, says that this doctrine should make us sensible how great a mercy it is to mankind that God has sent his own son into the world to be the light of the world. Very true. Think about that. You know, John 1 says, In him was life, and the light was the light of men. God sent such a light into such a dark world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or 2 Peter 1.19, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Because it is a dark place. It's really, really dark. But what a mercy, what a goodness, what wonderful good news that God has sent light into this dark place. We're not sufficiently conscious of just how dark it is. And therefore, we're not sufficiently mindful of the mercy of God in sending us Christ to be that light. We're not sufficiently mindful of the mercy of God in sending the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and to make us new. But surely these are this is the good news. God did send the light. God does send the Holy Spirit in this work of regeneration. 
So I mentioned that our darkness, naturally speaking, is invincible. God is more powerful than even the worst darkness. I should remind us, by the way, of that wonderful catechism question. Maybe some of you children know that one. Shorter Catechism 26. You know that one? How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. We, we, we kind of pass right over that when we say, good, he's going to conquer our enemies, great. But let's not forget about subduing us to himself. We say, oh, that's a trivial thing. That's, that's not much. The thing that's really important is the thing of, of conquering our enemies. Well, that's, that's the heart of pride that says you were easy to conquer. That you really were just had a, a cold of, of mild unbelief. And all, all the Lord had to do is briefly say a word to you and, and you were convinced. And it's not true. He had to subdue you. To himself. That's, by the way, John Calvin's testimony of himself. How does he describe his conversion? One who knew more about original sin than, than probably we do. One who is more cognizant of the darkness of the human condition. How does he describe it? He says, at that point, God subdued me. This rebel. This one in darkness and ignorance and superstition who greatly addicted to the superstitions of the Pope. He said, God subdued me to himself. What a wonderful truth that God is able to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Reminder also even of what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. The wonderful prayer that God has given to us and all Christians surely pray it. But what do we pray for in that third petition? Well, in the third petition, which is, I will be done in earth as it is in heaven, acknowledging that by nature we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, because that's it. It's not just an intellectual matter. We're unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but prone to rebel against his word, repine and murmur against his providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil we pray that God would, by his Spirit, take away from ourselves and others all blindness, weakness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart. And we need to be praying that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we need to think about the darkness, the Stygian darkness of ourselves and others around us and say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and take away this darkness because it's great, it's thick. And he can. And he does. And that's what this does, by the way. This, this focuses, this sharpens us. Right? We, we use the means of grace that God has given and we, we focus on prayer. Knowing the depth of the human problem, we, don't, we say that apart from God's goodness and power, no one will be saved. And we pray for our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors that God would do this great work. Thirdly and finally, something for us, particularly as the people of God, I want to remind us of the importance of being regularly fed, the means of grace. So again, in our pride, we think too much of ourselves. In our pride, we think that we're really strong and we're self-sufficient. We're more than sheep. We're, the, 
We're super sheep. We're almost, we're almost bears or something like that. We're lions. And we can go, we can feed ourselves. Beloved, God didn't make us that way. Despite what we think, we really are sheep. And soon enough, we fall back into darkness and blindness. Have you ever met a feral sheep? One who in their pride has said, You know, I'm a believer, but I don't need to be in church. I can go for weeks and months, sometimes even years, without being part of a church. I can make my own food, and I can make my own way. How's he doing? How's he doing? What's the life look like? What's the content of their faith? Is it the pure word of God, orthodox in every way, or riddled with error and unbelief in every sort of way? Beloved, you know the truth as well as I do. I know of not a single example of that working out because God did not design it to be that way. And we are just as weak as anybody else in our natural sinful human tendencies will take over it and that darkness and that desire to twist and that resistance against the word will soon enough overcome us. We need to be receiving the means of grace as much as absolutely possible. And that's my, my heart response to those who say, well, why, do I, why do I need to, why do I have to go? To, to two services on Sunday. It's not a, a, an item of, because I told you so. My response is one who says, brother, maybe you're stronger than me, but I'm desperately in need of the word of God. And I know my own sinful human heart, and I know that if I'm deprived of even the very least, to any extent of these means of grace, the immediate effect on my wicked heart. And I hope that your heart is desiring as much as you are able, providentially able, to be at the means of grace as much as humanly possible. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that you bring light to us Surely, Lord, we must recognize, we must confess that naturally we are blind. Naturally our heart is disposed and turned against God and your word. And Lord, we see this kind of darkness and ignorance everywhere in the world and we even see it in ourselves. Abundantly confirmed even of the best, in the best of your people as we see in this chapter. And Heavenly Father, how we pray, therefore, that you would all the more do the work of subduing us to yourself. All the more do the work of opening our eyes completely and fully, filling us with your word, and enabling us to receive these things with joy and dependence and gladness to our eternal benefit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.